Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's decision to attend a NATO summit in Brussels next week on March 24th, and the arrival by train in Kiev today of three prime ministers from Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia, who showed up in a city under siege and bombardment by Russia. Joining us is Thomas Berger, Professor of International Relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government and political culture. He's the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. With Germany now buying American F-35 aircraft and joining in punitive sanctions against Russia, we will look into the changes in German public opinion towards Russia and change in sympathies for Putin in the former East Germany, as well as within the business community who are going along with the sanctions. We'll assess whether the long-standing German policy of change through trade has run its course. Then we'll look into how the war in Ukraine is animating many Republicans and some Democratic hawks, and how Biden will navigate the building pressure to escalate America's intervention in Ukraine which is limited by the concern that direct clashes with Russians could lead to a nuclear war. Joining us is Jacob Halbrun, a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic, and we will discuss his article at The New York Review of Books, The Hawks Ascending. Then finally, with oil prices hurting consumers amid questions about price gouging and profiteering, we will speak with Alan Zibel, Research Director of Public Citizens' Corporate Presidency Project, who previously covered financial services regulation and housing for the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswires. We will discuss his article at Public Citizen, Oil and Gas Are Fueling Our Wars. They Cannot Be the Solution to End Them. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Thomas Berger, who's a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government and political culture. He's the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Berger. Hello, Ian. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And we're now learning that President Biden is going to go to the NATO summit in Brussels next week on uh, March 24th. And we're also learning that today the prime ministers of Poland the Czech Republic and Slovenia showed up by train in Kiev, a city under siege and bombardment by the Russians, which is pretty extraordinary for European leaders to take those kind of risks. So I'm calling you because 
the main change underway in, in European attitudes to Russia seems to be in Germany itself. There, I've been reading quite a bit about the change in attitudes in Germany. So it seems to me that public opinion has changed, that even in the East, where they, were, they obviously had ties to Russia during the, the Cold War, there's less of what are they, what's the word, Putin sympathizers. And even in the business community that were against cancelling the Nord Stream 2 and, and are concerned about their investments in Russia, they seem to be going along with the sanctions. So has a, a major change taken place in Germany? Yes, there has definitely been a major major change. Now, I do want to emphasize that, um, you know, even uh, in, the pa- in the past, uh, Germany has been much more serious about defense than it has been in the last few years. You could say that what we have right now is a kind of end of the illusion, the illusion that uh, Germany indulged in in the warm afterglow of the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, that somehow Europe was going to be living in a kind of postmodern paradise without uh, major security concerns uh, threatening the West. Um, And that illusion uh, and that belief was in some ways a reality for uh, about 30 years, even though you had many indications that things weren't going to be that simple. But that's been blown away now by this attack in Ukraine. And I think this is not just a momentary sort of surge of of emotions and fears in the wake of uh, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. It's a sort of realization uh, that uh, security concerns and specific the danger from Russia, but also that is new from potentially China, is something that Europe and Germany will have to deal with for a long time. However, I do want to sort of remind you that during the Cold War, even though Germany had strong pacifist tendencies, it had a very significant military. I mean, they had a standing army, 450,000 troops and men in uniform. They had a you had a military service, um, which most young men had to participate in. So you had um, reserves of over two million. Um, Germany spent over 3% of GDP on defense in those years. And in some ways, we've got a little bit of a back to the future. That is, we're moving back to a time again where Germany, in a very sort of sober, realistic way, is uh, trying to cope with very serious um, uh, potential threat coming from the East. Well, there are some 3,650 German companies active in Russia before the war in Ukraine. That's according to the Association of German Chambers of Commerce and Industry. And they've invested 25 billion euros in the country by 2019, according to the Bundesbank figures. And they employ uh, 280,000 people in uh, Russia. And Germany imported about 33 billion euros worth of goods from Russia last year while its exports uh, were about 26, uh, 27 uh, billion euros. And, of course, we know that Germany depends on Russia for 55% of its gas and half of its coal and 35% of its oil. So those are the economic ties. So for the longest time, there's been this policy, Wandel Deutsch Handel, change through trade. Uh, Where does that stand now? Well, there's going to be some handle, that there's going to be some trade down the line, but there's no expectation of uh, vandal, no expectation that things are going to change. The Germans are 
the current government, but also German public opinion, German business community is accepting the fact that you know, Germany has to get off of its dependence. Now, one thing we have to say, don't forget, Germany is a country of 82 million people. Its GDP is close to $4 trillion dollars. And about 50% of German GDP is generated over 50% uh, through trade. So that's two. Tr so if the Germans are doing about, you know, altogether 50 billion dollars worth of trade, both imports and exports with Russia, um, that's only against the backdrop of about two trillion dollars in trade. Yeah, so the total percentage of trade with Russia is not that large. It is profitable for certain companies, including uh, in particular Deutsche Bank, Germany's biggest uh, and traditionally most important bank, has uh, done a lot of business there. And it is, as you point out correctly, been very important for the German energy um, uh, sector. Uh, the Germans, along with the Europeans, came to the conclusion last weekend, other European leaders, that they can't quite embarrassing as it is, get away from um, uh, Russian energy exports for the next few years. They committed themselves to phasing them out by 2027. Um, uh, but for the near future, they're going to continue to trade with, uh, Russia, with Russia in the energy sector, simply because if they don't, there's a real risk that all of Europe will be in a deep, deep depression. But they um, have, I think, understood that they're going to have to move backwards from that. And that's going to cause a whole set of problems. They're facing some very uh, difficult uh, issues about how they're going to achieve uh, a weaning off of Russian energy supplies. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Berger, who's a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government and political culture. He is the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. And it also was announced today, Thomas, that Germany's buying F-35 American fighters. So that's definitely a change. And it seems that there is, even in the East, I understand, uh, where there was, you know, some residual sympathy from, for Russia, from those that grew up on the other side of the wall in the Cold War. But there's this expression in German, Putin sympathizes, of course, the most prominent mm -hmm. one being the former, former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder. His entire staff, which are funded by the German taxpayer en masse, they resigned recently because he refused, Schroeder refused to denounce Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Schroeder went to visit with Putin. Did anything come of that visit? I do not believe so. In fact, I was just listening to a German talk show where the head of the um, uh, SPD, the Social Democrat uh, faction, uh, faction in the in the Bundestag, the German legislature was talking about it. He's been writing uh, Schroeder, uh, um, Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor, um, uh, became after he left the chancellorship, he joined the board of the North Stream Energy Concern that's uh, done with the Russian energy company Gazprom um, and is uh, funneling uh, through a pipeline built through the north, uh, through the north, to the Baltic Sea, to Germany. And uh, Schroeder became the head of that. And he's been, uh, and this has been something of a scandal in uh, Germany for the last 20 years. Uh, Schroeder is now reaping the consequences of his uh, close association 
with the Putin regime. And I guess he's trying to, and there's a German phrase for it, Ehrenrettung, he's trying to save his reputation, hoping that he can go and, and talk to Putin and get some kind of, um, you know, diplomatic opening. Um, but uh, Schroeder's right now in, in very bad uh, odor in his own party. I will say, however, um, two things. First of all, public opinion polls, and I've seen a, a several of them show that there is a sharp difference between West and East Germans um, on this issue. Um, there is a, you know, Germany overall, 70, 75% uh, indicate at this point in time that they support their government's position, um, the position which was outlined by Chancellor um, Olaf Scholz in a, a speech in uh, February 27th uh, to the German Bundestag in which he outlined a lot of what the German government is now doing, including increasing defense spending and uh, weaning Germany off of Russian energy imports and uh, economic relations in general. So, you know, 75% of Germany supports that. In the eastern part of Germany, it's 50% closer to who support that stance. Moreover, Germany, you know, we talk about the change in attitude, but these kinds of attitudes don't shift as quickly as may sometimes seem. And uh, things maybe look a little bit more complicated as we move into the months and years ahead of us um, uh, as the costs go up. Um, there will be a desire, and that's a natural desire for, from a German point of view, to try to engage Russia. Um, Russia will not disappear as a problem. Yeah, um, no matter what we do um, in terms of supporting the Ukrainians, no matter even if Russia suffers a military defeat, there is going to be, a, and that's, whether that's actually even possible or what that would look like is another whole question, but um, uh, Russia will be a major force to reckon with and a potential threat in the East. And you can't just you know, deal with the Russians from a position of strength. You also have to engage them in conversation. And the Russians will certainly want to go back to talking about trade. The issue of energy trade with Germany goes all the way back to the Cold War. Uh, already in the late 60s, there were German companies uh, interested in doing business. And in the 1970s, following an important summit between the European leaders and the old USSR in, uh, in Helsinki, um, you had the opening up of serious German trade relations with Russia. That There were economic interests there, but also strategically speaking, the Germans, without succumbing to the temptation of trying to play East against West. Yeah? But the Germans felt that it is important to maintain a dialogue with Moscow, and that this is a way of engaging Russia. So even while we have the, the illusion, as you mentioned, Wandel durch Handel, that is an illusion that we can somehow transform the Russian system by engaging them economically, has been given up. That doesn't mean you don't want to somehow keep the Russians in the game, keep open a possibility for conversation and economics as a tool. So the Germans will come back to it, but they don't want to be dependent on Russia the way they are right now. So given that there's this change underway, what do you expect will happen next week at the NATO summit in Brussels? What kind of a speech do you think Biden should make? Well, I, well, I think Biden has, on the whole, done a fairly has done a good job of rallying our allies. I mean, uh, I think he has he's by instinct and temperament 
a uh, much better partner for the Europeans than Donald Trump certainly was. Well, and give us a break, I, Thomas. Yeah, I, mean, I know. The lo- that's lowering the bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can all be very grateful that uh, Donald Trump is not in office, though I um, am sure the people around Trump, but yeah, thank God we, Trump is not in the office during this crisis, okay? And this whole discussion of how, you know, Trump, this wouldn't have happened with Trump in the office is, frankly, from my point of view, nonsense. But let's focus on Germany. Yeah, so Biden is going to go there. He's going to hit the right notes. He's going to, you know, say that Atlantic solidarity is vital, that we have got to um, support the Ukrainians. He's going to frame this in moralistic tones, which is also correct. Um, And he's going to underline that we are not going to give one inch. We are going to protect NATO territory, even while we're not going to be going into the Ukraine. He will also have to, and we do need, there's going to have to be a negotiated solution at some point. Um, uh, every war has to end, and the, the, right now we are seeing a very costly bargaining process, a bargaining process which is being paid not just in dollars and rubles and euros, but also in the blood of Russian and, and Ukrainian soldiers and civilians on the Ukrainian side. Um, but there's going to have to be some kind of diplomatic discussion. It would be interesting, and I'm sure that they're discussing in the White House how they can signal also through that speech in, at NATO, what the beginnings of a dialogue on this issue might look like. You know, Zelensky as well. Uh, we are going to have to go back to diplomacy. Um, and there are going to be uh, what the outlines of that uh, final solution might be, that final sort of negotiated um, uh, bargain to end, at least stop the fighting and begin a longer longer-term diplomatic way of handling the situation is not clear at this point. But I guess some kind of version, some of the same principles that we had um, coming out of the Minsk process, the Normandy format, will be back on the table. And there will be, have to be some kind of concessions, because unless Putin magically disappears from the Kremlin, we can always hope for that outcome, but uh, we can't count on it by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to have to find the term is off-ramp, some kind of face-saving solution um, where uh, he can claim to his audience at home uh, that uh, something important has been gained. And I think that Biden will have to be addressing that. The German leaders, I just am following the German press, listening to German um, policymakers on, in, in both in print and on television, um, are also indicating that that's the direction we're going to have to go. Now, one of the points you made earlier, and this is going to be, we're going, this doesn't end, however, with that. This is going to be a process. One of the things which is going to be happening is that we are going to have to be thinking about what is going to happen not in the next few weeks or in a few months, but the next few years in terms of dealing with Russia. There is a real serious military threat towards Ukraine, towards the Baltic states, perhaps NATO as a whole. And that is going to require some significant institutional changes uh, and uh, changes in force posture and in uh, diplomatic strategy. And uh, one of the things you just mentioned, the F-35 Uh, The reason the F-35 issue is so pressing is it has to do with nuclear deterrence, which is going to be one of the very difficult issues that people are not talking about um, so openly. All throughout the Cold War, the way we dealt with the problem of decoupling, that is, would we in in a crisis involving nuclear weapons be willing to 
make good on our promise to protect Germany and other allies, non-nuclear, France and Britain have their own nuclear weapons, but most of our European allies, including very importantly Germany, uh, don't have any nuclear weapons. How do we solve that problem, that uh, if they are threatened with nuclear weapons? And the Russians say to us, well, if you intervene, right, uh, against us uh, in Germany, uh, we will retaliate against the U.S. mainland. You know, are you willing to lose, um, I don't know, uh, Chicago in order to protect uh, Munich? And the answer to that is that we had a nuclear, sh we have a nuclear sharing program. There are nuclear weapons which are under NATO control, including nuclear weapons, about 30 of them at air bases in Germany, which are um, at the same time flown by NATO jets, but those are jet jets which are piloted by German officers, uh, German uh, air They're currently the tornadoes, and, and they're going to replace them. And that's the exactly the issue. Yeah, that's exactly but, but let me just quickly in the and in so the, the Germans need to get the F thirty five. The tornadoes are becoming outdated, and right. this is a stopgap measure. But moving forward, we're going to have to go back to these issues of nuclear deterrence. We're so, going to go have to talk about this not only for Germany. We're going to have to think about Poland and the Baltic states, and what is that going to look like? And that right. is going to be a very difficult debate, including especially in Germany. So, just in the last minute, the. Three prime ministers of Poland, uh, Czech Republic and Slovenia show up in Kiev today by train. Very brave of them. Are they going to give the rest of the European leaders a little more backbone? In other words, these guys are really stepping. They're, they're taking a huge risk and, and showing solidarity. And Zelensky is doing a lot of TV appearances. He spoke to the Canadian Parliament tomorrow. He speaks to the U.S. Congress. But showing up there in Kiev is pretty brave. Well, it is very brave, and you know I applaud them for that. Um, I would say other European leaders have done things like that. Uh, if you may remember, in uh, uh, it was Sarkozy, I think, flew to um, to Georgia in 2008 to help negotiate a ceasefire. Back mm -hmm. even earlier, if you go back to um, uh, Sarajevo, to the Bosnian War, we had uh, European fly leaders flying into Sarajevo. So um, uh, these are important signals. These are signals which are being sent to Moscow. They're also very importantly signals which are being sent to the rest of Europe that we are, you know, and I think that they're, especially in the Baltic countries and in Poland, who feel very exposed to the Russian menace, who have been concerned about this for years. This is a message which plays well at home as well. Um, I don't think it's going to substantively change however, mm -hmm. um, what's going to be happening in Europe. But I certainly applaud them for that move, and, um, and uh, I think it's, it is an important signal. Well, Thomas Berger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you, Thomas. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Berger, who is a professor of international relations at Boston University, who specializes in German politics, international relations, and comparative government and political culture. He's the author of War, Guilt, and World Politics After World War II, and Cultures of Anti-Militarism, National Security in Germany and Japan. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the war in Ukraine is animating many Republican and some Democratic hawks.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jacob Halbrun, who is a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic, and he has an article at The New York Review of Books, The Hawks Ascending. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbrun. Thank you, Ian. So given that the Hawks are all excited about this war in Ukraine in the sense that uh, many feel vindicated and others are piling on, but then you have on the right, you have people like Colonel McGregor, who I've spoken to in the past. He's a pretty odd character. You spoke with him as well, vilifying Zelensky along with Fox News's Tucker Carlson and Congressman Madison Hawthorne as well. So it's a mixed bag. So let me start with what's happening with Biden. Though. Do you think that he's come up and a little bit up in the polls lately because of his handling of the Russia-Ukraine situation? But as the Western audience and the American audience watch helplessly as Ukrainian citizens are slaughtered, do you think that's going to put more and more pressure on Biden to do something when he's obviously circumscribed by fear of provoking anything that could spark a nuclear war. I think Biden has actually done quite a bit. He's coming under fire from the neoconservative wing of the Republican Party, which includes Senator Tom Cotton, Representative Liz Cheney, and Senator Lindsey Graham are all depicting Biden as too weak in confronting Putin's war in Ukraine. At the same time, you have the liberal hawks in the Democratic Party, such as uh, former Obama administration defense official Evelyn Farkas and others who are complaining that the Biden administration is not enforcing a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Now, I think Biden so far has split the difference. He grew up during the Cold War he served in office during the Cold War. So he remembers that there are red lines for each side that neither was willing to cross. And Biden has made it abundantly clear that if the Russians attack any NATO country, there will be an immediate and significant response. Ukraine simply is not a member of NATO. We have no formal alliance with it. So he is supplying it with hundreds of millions of dollars of weaponry. And I think that Biden so far has got it right. So is it, though, likely to get tougher for Biden? Because do you think the American public are going to demand something gets done as they watch people being helplessly slaughtered? I don't know. Um, the, the flip side of that is that the American public is not eager to become embroiled directly in another war abroad, even if this one is in Europe rather than the Middle East. And I think Biden's poll ratings have risen because he has handled it so deftly until now. Uh, the hawks in each party will certainly continue to decry what they will depict as Biden's caution and pusillanimity in the face of evil. Uh, if Putin employs chemical weapons in Ukraine, for example, then it could start to become dicier for Biden. 
Well, there was a poll uh, recently that had 65% of Americans, I believe, believing that had Trump been in power, the Ukraine war wouldn't have happened. Well, that is obviously a complete flap doodle. Well, it isn't to the extent that Trump would have handed, Putin, handed Ukraine, perhaps even Alaska, back to Putin on a silver platter. Right. His entire presidency consisted of relentlessly toadying to Putin. We don't know exactly why, but he did. His administration did pass sanctions against Russia. The officials underneath Trump did pursue, in contradiction to his own policies or expressed wishes, a tough line on Russia. But the notion that Trump himself would in any way have deterred Vladimir Putin is completely nonsensical. So Trump has changed his tune a little bit on Ukraine, but not on Putin. He's still praising Putin, along with Mike Pompeo, by the way, his former Secretary of State. It is amazing that, that Trump, for example, the other day said that uh, Putin attacked Ukraine, quote, out of love, unquote. Now, whether that's simply an expression of the primitiveness of Trump's own thinking or something else, I don't know. But the fact is that Donald Trump worships Vladimir Putin. He sees him. He idolizes him. He sees him as the kind of leader that he would like to be here in the United States. Well, there have been prior to that, of course, in your article, you mentioned that back in 2017, Christopher Caldwell, a former senior editor at the Weekly Standard and a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, said, if we were to use traditional measures for understanding leaders, which involves the defense of borders and national flourishing, Putin would count as the preeminent statesman of our time on the world stage. Who can vie with him? Only perhaps Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. What are they saying that lately, these people? Even at the time, this view could only be described as highly eccentric. There is a segment of the conservatives, they call themselves, many of them call themselves national conservatives, who view the United States as a decadent Western country that has been captured by liberals who are foisting gay rights, transgender rights, and feminism on the United States and weakening the moral fiber of the country so that a woke military can't even compete abroad. This was the line. They hailed leaders like Putin and Hungary's Viktor Orban as enlightened sentinels of traditional Western values. Putin and Orban are supposedly the heroes, while Biden is the enemy. That's, that's what Tucker Carlson is essentially espousing night after night on Fox News and small wonder that he's excerpted regularly on Russian state television. So their belief system then is that Putin, with, through his alliance with the conservative, ultra-conservative uh, Russian Orthodox Church, is the kind of Western hero of the, the last redoubt of the white man against the Muslims, against gays, and all in favor of traditional family values and Christian family values. Is that the tie? Yes, they couldn't. They, they, they are traipsing over to Hungary, or they, a lot of conservatives have been traipsing over to Hungary and spouting exactly that line. And what they, some of them, the intellectuals, may be loath 
to explicitly acknowledge, but let's face it, there's a good dose of white nationalism percolating below this intellectual veneer that they have constructed. It reminds me of the left-wing fellow travelers who traipsed over to the Soviet Union during the 1930s and claimed that they had seen the future. That's what they were saying about Hungary and even about Putin, that these guys are the avatars of the way to hold together Western society, and that we need to smash the institutions in the United States and get back to the good old glory days of the 1950s, when, incidentally, minorities had few, if any, rights in this country. Well, there was a BBC reporter a while back interviewed one of these pro-Russian fighters in Donetsk, uh, in the Donbass, and asked him why he was fighting against his Ukrainian brothers. And he said, because the Ukrainian government is going to force me to marry a man. So I find it extraordinary, though, that anybody on the political left in this country supports Putin. I mean, he's a far right winger. He's a champion of the international right wing movement. There was a big gathering of all the right wing leaders and neo-Nazis and white supremacists from around the world recently in St. Petersburg. What more evidence do we need that Putin is a right winger? So why do some Americans on the left support him? Well, I think they, they believe that uh, the United States is a militaristic society, that we are to blame because of NATO expansion, and that we forced Russia into a corner, and that Putin represents an alternative to the American empire. Um, if you look at the way Putin is conducting the war in Ukraine, this seems wholly far-fetched to me. I mean, he is essentially... Uh, doing what he did in Chechnya and Syria, engaging in massive war crimes, even if the media is so far reluctant to use that word. But he's deliberately targeting civilians for destruction. And the United States doesn't wage war any like that anymore. We did in World War II and realized that it's it's not only immoral, but ineffective. Um, so I, I am... It's, it's appalling if anyone would, would take that stance, uh, whether on the right or the left, but they do. So what about then the, the hawks like the Tom Cottons and others that are trying to push Biden into God knows what, you know, deploying soldiers, uh, no-fly zones, all of that sort of reckless stuff that they're demanding? That's not going to go away. That's going to intensify, isn't it? They will certainly try. Um, I think Biden is pretty tough. If you look at the Afghan pullout, he overruled all his advisors and insisted on departing from Afghanistan, which I think was the right call. Uh, whether you can quarrel about the execution, but imagine if we were still mired in Afghanistan and trying to deal with this crisis in Ukraine. I just don't think it's tenable. Uh, the right will be, in, will be trying to depict Biden as the new Jimmy Carter, someone under whose presidency gas prices are soaring, and where foreign powers willy-nilly are running roughshod over American friends and allies. But again, so far, Biden has taken pretty tough, strong measures. I mean, we, we don't know how the Russian economy is going to hold up under these sanctions. They may default on their bonds soon. Uh, you see stories that there, there is uh, struggles for basic food supplies in Russia, 
the it is not to be precluded that the the country will collapse. I don't know if it will, but it is certainly under tremendous pressure. Couple that with a blitzkrieg that has turned into a zitzkrieg, uh, which means a sitting war. I mean, the Russians are not making the kind of progress that they anticipated. To me, it looks like Putin was surrounded by his own version of neocons who told him that this war in Ukraine would be a cakewalk. And thanks to the heroic efforts of the Ukrainian army, it has turned out to be anything but. So where are we heading, though, in terms of Biden making it clear that what is happening here is a war between democracy and autocracy? And that's that in our post-Cold War world, you know, without ideology, except maybe with Xi Jinping, trying to go back to the days of Mao Zedong. But Putin has no ideology. And the real battle lines in the world today are between democracy and the rule of law and autocracy and kleptocracy. And that, to me, is what's at stake here. Because Putin, for all the talk about NATO expansion, he's really more concerned about Ukraine joining the EU and becoming a part of Europe because he doesn't want to have a democracy on his doorstep because that will infect his autocracy, and he has to give the Russian people bread and circuses in order to distract them from the fact that him and his cronies are stealing the country blind. And now but, they've had to dispense he, with any kind of form of pretense that there's any any freedom of the press now. So they're going back to full kind of Stalinist control. And I don't know how long that's going to last, particularly, as you point out, with an economy in collapse. But these are the battle lines, and I just don't feel that Biden is making it clear that the Ukrainians are fighting and dying for democracy. And here in our country, we're letting democracy slip through our fingers as the Republicans engage in massive voter suppression. There are two things that Biden can do. One is that he is apparently considering a visit to Europe, which I think would help. You have the heads of Central European countries heading to Kiev, Today, I think Biden should travel to Europe and he can address the German Bundestag or parliament. He could, he could also travel to uh, Paris and London and make speeches there. The second thing that I think he should do is to deliver a national address to the American people, explaining what the stakes are, what the sacrifices will be, how he intends to conduct this conflict, and why it is pivotal to protecting not only Ukrainian freedoms, but also Western ones. So you feel that that's coming or you wish it were coming? I think the trip to Europe is coming. I think he's going to have to give an address to, to the American people. And I'm, perhaps, perhaps it should already, already have taken place. But what can be done to smoke out who Trump really is, that he's as the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said Vladimir Putin is Donald Trump's case officer. I mean, it's just it's been obvious for some time that Putin has something over Trump, and we could go into it if you like, but it's so obvious now that he is praising this guy uh, and saying that he, he was too soft on the Ukrainians. I mean, what planet is this man on? So is anything going to happen with Trump and with Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is now a feature on 
Russian propaganda, their main main channel one news. I mean, they play him all the time. He's like their star. He should be ashamed. I mean, but he obviously, I don't know what's going on at Fox. Do you? I mean, I don't. What were the Murdochs? I mean, the the guy that's supposed to be running it, Lachlan Murdoch, is living in Australia now. And as far as I know, Viet Ding runs the place. What kind of editorial? Do they have any editorial control or not? I mean, is this just Tucker Carlson's out there on his own spreading Russian propaganda and that's okay with the Murdochs? I I don't get it. Well, as this conflict grinds on, I think both Carlson and even more Trump are taking body blows. Uh, There are articles, there was an article in the NBC news site yesterday saying that the America first in in uh, the Midwest is starting to buckle over the conflict in Ukraine. You're seeing lots of towns and cities displaying Ukrainian flags and paraphernalia. I think that the wind has been taken out of the sails of Trump and Putin served as a valuable ally to him in the uh, 2016 election and he constantly tried to curry favor with him. Now Putin has become an international pariah, and it will be much harder, maybe even impossible, for Trump to make the case in foreign policy that his America First doctrine is a viable way of protecting American security. I think that truly is coming to an end. There will be a battle royale in the Republican Party, but already you can see the the, the opportunists who want to take Trump's place, such as Tom Cotton, are pushing a much more vigorous foreign policy line than Trump himself. The only way that Trump could succeed in an upcoming election would be if the American economy craters. But I don't think foreign policy will redound to his benefit. Look, the hawks in the Republican Party are on the ascendant. The America First are on the back foot right now, and I'm skeptical that that's going to change. Well, Jacob Harbin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Jacob Harbin, who's a senior editor at the National Interest and a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And he has an article at the New York Review of Books, The Hawks Ascending. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into how oil prices are hurting consumers amid questions about price gouging and profiteering. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alan Zibel, who is a research director of Public Citizens Corporate Presidency Project, who previously covered financial services regulations and housing for the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswise. He has an article at Public Citizen, Oil and Gas Are Fueling Our Wars. They Cannot Be the Solution to End Them. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Zibel. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. And there's a lot of Americans looking at the outrageous prices of gas at the pump and wondering why the price of gas is so high because we've put sanctions on Russian oil, but we hardly consume any Russian oil. I think it's less than 2%. So why? what's the answer there? Why are we paying through the nose this premium, presumably because we're banning the import of Russian oil when Russian oil imports are negligible? Right. I think the um, the real answer to that is is that um, you know uh, crude oil prices are set on a global uh, market by energy traders in Chicago and New York and Singapore and Hong Kong everywhere really, and it, it is is less to do with what the on the ground uh, supply demand balances and, and more to do with what. Uh, traders are are worried about um, uh, for the future. So um, it's kind of a a buy the rumor, sell the news kind of thing, where traders started buying a lot of oil futures in advance of the Russian invasion, and then uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, the prices spiked. Uh, And now, um, over the past few days, they're down a whole bunch. I mean, so crude oil... After peaking to above uh, 130, I think, today it's down to 95. So, um, you know, the, the, the way these commodity markets work, they, they um, are, are very kind of wild, kind of mood swing type uh, dynamics. And, and uh, that's the biggest impact on your, the, price, the price that you pay at the pump, uh, for better or for worse, right? Well, but what's the lag time? In other words, are prices high at the pump because of that day's cost of oil per barrel? And if you go from 130 down to 95 in a matter of, what, about a week? Right. When do we start getting a price break of the $95 barrel? Because I would have thought there's a lot of inventory in the pipeline so that when the gas station filled up, when the gas was low... The price was low. As it jumps up, whatever's left in the tanks suddenly become more expensive. Is that how it works? Well, there tends to be a lag between the retail price at the pump and um, crude oil. You know, the price of wholesale crude oil. Uh, it tends to be sticky, right? So, individual retail gas station owners do not typically lower their price until they have to, right? They're trying to get as much profit as they can while the uh, while the going's good. And then they're gradually, people start lowering their prices and then it, it goes back down. But it, you should definitely expect some time of a, a lag between the retail price and the wholesale price. I don't know how long that will be, but, um, but there typically is a lag. So... We don't know, or you can't tell us when we're going to be getting gas at the ninety-five dollar barrel. When, when that's going to flow to the to the pump? Exactly. Um, I do not know when. I would love to know so I can wait to fill up my car, but uh, but I do not know. Well, but why isn't there some clarity here? I you know people quite rightly think they're being gouged, and maybe they are. In fact, it seems like they are. 
Right. And these are all private markets, right? I mean, we have been doing some thinking at Public Citizen, my colleague, uh, has been doing some thinking about what what should there be? Should there be some sort of price transparency for wholesale commodity markets? I mean, there is price transparency for electricity, but not gasoline and, and crude. But we, you know, what's been kind of remarkable to me, um, and what I've noticed is is how aggressively the oil industry has spun this situation to try to change the topic from price gouging to um, their, you know, pushing their long-standing agenda of Keystone XL and, and LNG exports and, and expanded drilling, when, you know, that's really the last thing that we should be doing. You know, we really need to be moving away from fossil fuels and ending our fossil fuel addiction rather than becoming more reliant. And um, they've really used a lot of misleading talking points to, to kind of try to convince the public that we can we can drill our way out of the problem, which we, we really can't. Right, but the oil companies and the Congress people on their payroll, they're all shouting from the rafters, drill, drill baby, drill. Uh, right. And they must be feeling pretty good about what's happening with the price of oil going up as it is. I mean, and that's Are we so hopelessly addicted to oil that we can't suddenly realize who the price gougers and the profiteers are and that not only are they making a windfall, they're also accelerating the demise of the planet. That's true. I mean, where you know where you can really look to for hope is Europe. I mean, this crisis has really caused the Europeans to think about, and the Germans in particular, to think about. You know, can they be? They can't be reliant on Russian natural gas anymore. Um, so I mean, I, I think you'll see some of the serious policy toward further encouraging renewables and decreasing fossil fuel reliance. Um, you know, out of the EU countries you know unfortunately we are not leading the way on that here in the u.s um you know even though many many people in the u.s desperately want to do so we, you know that's just we had senator manchin today this week just blocking you know, sarah bloom raskin nominee for the federal reserve who um, is a real champion and a real advocate of um, integrating climate change with financial regulation, regulation of the biggest banks, so that, you know, the Senator Manchin and, and the um, fossil fuel industry were able to torpedo her her nomination, and they've been able to stall the president's Build Back Better bill. So, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot to be hopeful for here, uh, here in D.C. I mean, you know, one of the things that we, that we've been advocating for and other groups have been advocating for was to, uh, a bill that, a part of Build Back Better, actually, that would simply equalize the amount of royalties that um, oil and gas uh, drilling companies, fracking companies, have to pay for onshore drilling on public lands versus uh, offshore drilling. So it's actually kind of little known uh, fact that, that onshore drilling companies get a break and pay less to the government for royalties than offshore drillers do. Um, and and in actually in, in states too, states like Texas and other states charge more in royalties than the the federal government does. And so that, that should be a no-brainer to fix and you know, would ensure that oil companies don't 
continue to rip off taxpayers for the right to drill in public lands. So we, you know, we would hope that that could get through at some point, and it seemed kind of close last year, but unfortunately got got stuck with Build Back Better getting stuck. So, so that's one of the key things that we're pushing for. That's kind of an incremental change, but it would be a um, a victory over the oil industry, which which as you know, it's become clear for the past couple of days, or even is is just tremendously powerful in Washington, and I mean, it's, it's just. Remarkable. I mean, the Republicans on the Hill um, to a you know almost to a, you know to a T, right? To all of them, I mean, they just echo the industry, the APIs, the American Petroleum Institute's talking points, left and right. I mean, like you know, they're reading from the same uh, from the same talking points. So it's it's uh, it's disappointing. And again, I'm speaking with Alan Zibel, Research Director of Public Citizens Corporate Presidency Project who previously covered financial services regulation and housing for the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswise. He has an article at Public Citizen, Oil and Gas Are Fueling Our Wars. They Cannot Be the Solution to End Them. So Manchin, who you mentioned, is unfortunately the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. And of course, he's in the coal business. His family business is distributing coal. And not only has he killed Build Back Better, but now they're trying to reinvent Build Back Better and to make it more modest. But now he's signaled that he's not interested in the renewable energy part of the Build Back Better, particularly the idea of charging stations for electric cars. He actually said that he's against electric cars and that he doesn't want to be dependent on batteries and the battery supply chain, which is completely absurd. And then he harkened back to the energy crisis in the 1970s and people having to line up, you know, for gas. Well, you don't have to line up for, for an electric charge. You have a PowerPoint in your garage where you use electricity overnight to charge your car, which is in, when it's really cheap because the, there's not much demand on the grid. So the guy is woefully ignorant or he's deeply cynical. I don't know which one. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the 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 thing is, I mean, I know he's he's uh, he does drive a Maserati. He's been uh, widely noted. He drives a gas guzzler. Um, but if he were to drive around the uh, you know D.C. in the Maryland and Virginia suburbs, there's electric cars all over the place. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure as I'm sure there are in California, New York, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, you know Seattle. Oregon, a lot of the country, Colorado, I'm sure, right? Um, you know, electric cars have have boomed over the past three, four years. I mean, noticeably in my neighborhood, you know, a lot of the country, right? And it's only, you know, it's not just Tesla anymore. There's VW has yeah, EV, Ford, GM, Nissan, you know, a bunch of the car companies are increasingly taking this business very, very seriously, you know, after many years of not say, taking it seriously. And so it's, it's pretty clear that this is the future. Um, so, you know, I mean, being dependent on China for batteries and on various, uh, you know, countries around the, around the globe for uh, raw materials is, is certainly a problem. That doesn't mean we should just, you know, continue burning fossil fuels, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a solvable that's a solvable problem. So it's sort of like 
it, it does seem that he's throwing a red herring out there. But isn't the problem for Biden that the rising gas prices are a big driver of inflation and he's getting slammed over that? Absolutely. And he's been, you know, he's been calling up the Saudis and the Emiratis who won't take his phone call, by the way, asking them to pump more. And right. they've given him the back of his hand. And obviously, if you take Russian oil off the market, which they're trying to do, it will, as you point out, it will affect the price, obviously. So, unfortunately, Biden's stuck signaling we need more gas, isn't he? Yeah, and I mean, I, it, that should all, um, uh, you know, that should all even in itself out, you know, within the next few months. I mean, they are looking at Venezuela um, at lifting sanctions on on Venezuela to help make up the gap, but um, yeah, it's a it's a short term crisis. But I I think that you can, I mean, you know, who knows if I'm right? But I mean, I think you, we saw in the market uh, over the past couple of days is that this may be a temporary spike um, that that may ease back after a couple of weeks, right? I mean, crude has really plunged over the past couple of days. I mean, I think that it does raise the question of whether we need more um, aggressive regulation of commodity markets, right? Of commodities trading, because price transparency or some form of, of tighter, regulate, tighter oversight of these prices. Well, just in closing, Alan Zibble, then, is there anything that you and Public Citizen are doing, obviously, to try and change the subject away from we need to have more gas and more drilling to lower the price of at the pump, you know, taking the the necessary step, which right. is to find ways to simply not be dependent on gas and oil and do that as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to call attention to fossil fuel company profiteering to the really outrageous profits that they are uh, making right now after... Um, many years of running their companies poorly and not making much or losing money. They, they're making a ton of money right now and kind of profiteering off the crisis. So we're calling attention to that. We're calling attention to the, the API, kind of using uh, misleading talking points to, to blame Biden for high prices, which they were doing you know, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? They were um, trying to claim that that sort of Biden's long-term federal you know, plan to scale back uh, federal production was really what uh, production of federal lands and waters was really what was pushing up prices when then that was actually kind of nonsense and um, um, really had more to do with the economy and some of the dislocations from the, the pandemic than, than anything Biden was doing on energy policy, but the, you know, the oil industry will kind of use um, and twist a, a, a crisis for, for its, for its own benefit to establish, to, to advocate for, for what they have been advocating for in the first place. I mean, it's, it's very disingenuous, but that's what they do. Well, Alan Zibble, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate it. And again, I mean, speak with Alan Zibble, who's a research director at our Public Citizens Corporate Presidency Project, who previously covered financial services regulation and housing for the Wall Street Journal and the Dow Jones Newswires, and he has an article of Public Citizen, Oil and Gas Are Fueling Our Wars. They cannot be the solution to end them. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.